Good morning, everybody. Uh, and I, I have we, my wife and I, Joanna. We've been married over 25 years. We have five children, and uh, if if any of them were here this morning, they'd want me to make very clear. Uh, although we worship in St. Paul, we live in Minneapolis. So, <clears throat> across the river, it just becomes very different. So, uh, but I do want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Pastor Chris and the session. And all of you really for this opportunity to bring uh, the Word of God this morning. If you could turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm 131 or just follow along in the order of worship. Psalm 131, and I'm guessing when Chris asked me to preach, and I, I didn't know what text it would be at the time, and I sent it to him and he opened it up in his inbox, he probably had to look it up and go, hmm, that's interesting. Sort of a a psalm on uh, breastfeeding or something. What is how's he going to preach this? This will be interesting. He never commented on it. He just okay, got it. But let's dig into the psalm. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great. And too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Before we dig in, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Grant your people grace to listen well. Awaken, illumine, convict. Change us. Have your way with us now. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Rolling Stones famously sang... You can't always get what you want. Advertisers prey upon it. Uh, There's apps that try to help you get it. And the need is, is universal. It's regardless of nationality, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, religion, or creed. And yet we all look for it in different ways, different places. Everyone, absolutely everyone, wants it. And many are uncertain how to get it. Or at least how to keep it. I'm talking about contentment. Contentment. Most of us would say, if I were to take a straw poll this morning, we'd be mostly content in one of two ways. Either if something was removed from you, Whether it might be sickness or a difficult relationship, life circumstance, a bad job, a trying home life, etc. If you took this away from me, if I didn't have this in my life anymore, then I, I think I would be really content or mostly content. But we also might say we'd be content if something better happened to us. A better job, maybe, or more money, more friends, healthy relationships. 
Let me ask you now. Are you content? Are you a contented person? What's the one thing that you'd have to have either taken away from you or happen to you in order for you to be really content? And think on that one thing as we move forward this morning. What is true contentment? How do we get it? Where do we get it? I've titled this sermon, The Prescription of Contentment, but I wonder if it might be better retitled, A Portrait of Contentment. And this morning we're going to consider Psalm 131 in three ways. First, the poison of contentment. Second, the person of contentment. And lastly, properly placed contentment. The psalm is, as we read read in the opening inscription, and it is also recognized as a part of Hebrew scripture, it's a song of ascents. What does that mean? Well, the nation of Israel would, as God's chosen people, they would have sung this psalm together, along with a handful of other psalms on the way up to Jerusalem to worship God. Hence the song of ascents. They would sing this song together. So it wasn't just David's psalm, it was the nation of Israel's psalm. And you'll note how concise it is. Isn't it? Just It's minimalist. There's no fillers. Creatures would do well to heed it. Negatively, what David, with David, what is he, what, notice what he isn't. And that's how the psalm begins in verse 1. Look there. He says his heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high. He doesn't occupy himself with thoughts too great and too marvelous for him. And what David's putting his finger on right here is the poison of contentment. Now, what what do I mean by this? His heart, and here he's referring to his inner person. It's It's not lifted up. His eyes... He's referring here to his desires, his aims, his longings, his lifestyle. That's reflected in, I do not occupy myself with these things. Pride, ambition, self-sufficiency. These are poison to contentment. And David says to the Lord, I am not these things. So let's ask, why are these things poison for contentment? And David does not elaborate. At this point in the psalm, he simply begins with these negative statements, asserting what he isn't. And it's in very strong language. Of course, there are many things we could say that are obvious uh, detriments to contentment. Sin, right? Anything contrary to God's will. And this is echoed in uh, later on in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Do you see that sort of echo Back to Psalm 131, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so we might say that the poison of contentment looks like this. Someone who vainly seeks contentment in things related primarily to self, 
things one attempts to obtain apart from God. It's the picture of the American self-made person. This is the person climbing the ladder of status, privilege, ego, self-importance. And if you aspire to live in this way, whether you achieve those things or not, contentment is temporary and fleeting and transient. Now, most of us here this morning might think this is a reflection really of the world, isn't it? And, and their desires. But what about the church? This understanding of contentment is in the air we breathe. And it's in the water that we drink. It's ubiquitous. Are there ways that you seek contentment? This calm and peace that David's referring to here, apart from God, that you may not even be aware of this morning. Is there anything in your life, anything in your life? And here, think about not just material objects. Think about your longings. Think about your loves, your hopes, your aspirations, your dreams. Is there anything here that is out of alignment with contentment in God? David begins negatively, stating what he isn't, but then we have this sharp contrast, which brings us to our second point, found in verse 2. The person of contentment. David asserts he's not prideful, he's not haughty, and not allowing the ways of the world to shape his life. So what is he like? Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, child is my soul within me. Now in some ways, this simile seems... It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's a bit off-putting. I mean, who wants to be compared to a weaned child who no longer needs mommy's milk? Is that how the descriptor you would use? I'm feeling pretty calm and pretty peaceful. Kind of like that, you know, that breastfeeding child, I don't need it anymore. People would look at you and just go, hmm, that's really an interesting descriptor. Nobody here would do that. But upon further consideration, as we look at the portrait that David paints, it is a beautifully intimate picture. And unlike the nursing infant who wants one thing and one thing only, mommy's milk, the weaned child that David paints for us is one of absolute contentment. No longer craning her neck, demanding to be fed or else, and David here likens himself to this weaned child. She doesn't primarily view the mother as what? As a source, an unending source to provide something she needs or wants. Rather, what is she doing? Content simply being with her. Being in the mother's very presence. More accurately, 
This uh, verse in two, verse two, could be translated "weaned the weaned child upon his mother." The weaned child upon his mother, and this is how David compares himself. And the language in Hebrew is much stronger than our English texts suggest. David here is he's employing oath language. He is saying to the Lord. That a more accurate translation, I swear that. I swear, Lord, this is, this is what I have done. Now, some of you might be thinking, really? David? I mean, this is King David, you know, who wrote this and with such strong oath language. And this picture of contentment, yes, may have been true of David in his youth and early years. But what about his middle and late years. Was he the poster child of contentment in God? Always? What about his episode with Bathsheba? Well, not always. And yet here it is. We must remember that David, who wrote this, the king of Israel, he had untold power and wealth at his disposal. And he, he in his prayer to the Lord, he says, I swear... I swear this is what I am like. So yes, David is clearly a portrait of contentment. He's resting uh, upon his mother's breast, saying, not demanding anything, simply being with her. He's likening, that's how he's saying his relationship with God is at this point. And so that's the first person of contentment is the child, as we look at here at verse 2. But what else do we see? Looking at the child, one can't help but also look at the mother. And as we do so, what do we find? We find a picture of incredible intimacy, nurturing, loving, caring, providing. And David, poetically, he's pointing to God and he's saying, This is what he is like. Now, it's obviously not a complete description of God's attributes. But John Stott says that this psalm speaks to the tender, intimate motherhood of God. Now, hold on. I know what you're thinking. Uh Uh-oh, he's from Minneapolis. Where is he going? He's not assigning gender to the Lord God. Rather, he's putting his finger on the nurturing aspect of the Lord in relationship to his people. Much how a mother holds an infant to her breast, capturing the most intimate of bonds between a mother and child. That's what he means. Brothers and sisters, do you, as you look at this portrait, Do you experience this beautiful intimacy that David portrays? Do you know what it is to rest, rest in the arms of God? Yes, I know it's not the totality of the Christian life, yet it's here in Holy Scripture. David favorably compares himself to this weaned infant One who is perfectly content simply being with the Lord. 
and experiencing His love, His tenderness, care, warmth, and presence, I ask each of you, do you know God in this way? Or are you more comfortable primarily relating to the Lord as one who is wholly transcendent, sovereign, majestic, other? We must strive to know and relate to the triune God as revealed in Scripture as both fully and wonderfully transcendent and imminent, powerful, awesome, mighty, and tender, powerful, awesome, and mighty on the one hand, and tender and wooing and compassionate, not either or, but both and. Let's move on from the persons of contentment to our last point, and that's properly placed contentment. And you'll notice that in verse 3. Properly placed contentment. You may have already noted this prayer's progression. David begins first in in verse 1 by addressing God, and he compares himself in verse 2 to this weaned infant. But now he pivots And he addresses Israel in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And that's how the psalm ends. So here's the question. Why does he end with hope? And how does hope relate to being content in God? And here's what I think he's putting his finger upon. What we hope in will affect our contentment. What we hope in will affect whether you're content or not. Put it another way, if you want to be truly content, hope in the right things. And of course, David here is specific. Hope in Yahweh. Hope in the Lord. But he doesn't elaborate. He merely gives the charge and the psalm ends. Which begs the question, what does it mean to hope in God? If you want to be... if you, it, this, this psalm is meant to be before us and it's meant to elicit desire, to say, I want to be that way. There's not a person here who... After reading that psalm and looking at that picture, David, the poet that he is, wants to conjure up emotion and desire coming out in singing and saying, yes, I want that. I want that. There's not a person here who doesn't want that. Well, how do you get it? I'll highlight just a few things of what it means to hope in God. First, it isn't an individual, but rather a corporate endeavor. It's not individual, but a corporate endeavor. J.I. Packer writes that hope is an ethic of pilgrimage. An ethic of pilgrimage. Now, what does he mean? He means that we ought to see ourselves in this world as strangers traveling home. And just as the nation of Israel would travel together, ascending toward Jerusalem, singing this song, so as we look at this psalm, we too are strangers in 
as a part of God's chosen community, living in an alien world, hostile usually to our faith and our belief, traveling to our heavenly home. And it's a pilgrimage that Luther writes, whose pilgrims are preserved by hope for that future and better life. But it is primarily corporate and not private. It's not an individual endeavor. There are individual aspects and personal aspects, of course. The second point is we must know what hope produces. It's one thing just to say, hope in God, hope in the Lord. Okay, but what, what flows from properly placed hope? Briefly, four things. Purity. Hopers in God on this side of the cross, hope in Jesus. And this means that we long to be pure even as He is pure, as it says in 1 John 3, verse 3. Second, it produces preparedness that we are ready to leave this world for a closer relationship with Jesus when our time comes, and here referring to death. It doesn't mean that we are disengaged from the world and we don't care about the things of the world, but it means you're open-handed. And it means this isn't the ultimate end for which we exist. Third, it produces patience and perseverance. And you see this from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.25. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Reflecting upon this verse, Luther writes that hope is nothing less than spiritual courage. The ability, in other words, to keep on keeping on. And fourth, power. Hope fuels strength and confidence. And it's going to energize your efforts for running the race to fight the good fight, enduring as Paul says, light and momentary troubles in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Know what hope produces. Know the fruits of hope. Lastly, know that hope is certain. Know that it's certain. It's, It's right to sit back and ask, is such contentment even possible? Now, it's important he's not talking about a Zen-like utopia, a heaven on earth right now. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, as we live our increasingly hectic lives, lives often lived in isolation from one another, even often as the church, we have to admit that we often feel like that unweaned child, the discontented one, the restless one, always demanding, striving for something more, never satisfied. Maybe this is true for most of us and in ways that we are too ashamed to admit. Or worse yet, perhaps we're so consumed with our multifaceted discontentedness, it seems nearly impossible just to sit back, stop, and examine our lives. 
it could be easy to walk away from here going, do what David did. But David doesn't merely want us to use him as a moral example. O Israel, he says, and today it be, O church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What is David saying? This psalm calls us to go beyond considering David and instead consider his greater son, the one who achieved salvation for us, redeemed us, who atoned for our sins by, by being our substitute. And though we have to admit the Christian life is marked more often by suffering, as the Puritans would say, losses and crosses, compared to earthly glory and triumph, we must know that as we hope in the Lord, that it, our ultimate victory in Him is absolutely certain. The Psalter, all of the Psalms, was not only the prayer book of Israel, but it was Jesus' prayer book. And because Christ firmly hoped in the Father from His earthly birth all the way to His resurrection and His eventual ascension, it means that our hope, your hope, no matter how dim it is this morning, no matter if you're barely struggling to hope in some aspect in the Lord, some of you are just sailing. You're just you're the, the the winds at your back, and you're just you're you're growing, and your your hope is full. You're like yes, and I'm just like I I'm not there. And I my hunch is is that's most of you. Hope placed in Christ is certain. It is a rock solid hope. This psalm is a call to look to Christ as our brother, as our redeemer, as our savior, as our Lord, as our friend. And to link arms together as co-pilgrims hoping in God, come what may. As we conclude, let me ask, don't you long for this contentment that David portrays. A contentment that starts from the inside and goes out. One that he has calmed and quieted his soul. In light of this psalm, we must repent of false hopes and aspirations and return to the one who doesn't merely give us hope, but is himself the very embodiment of it. And it's important to note that true contentment isn't found if you look for it as a means to an end, but it's found only when we place our hope in the one who alone is the source and sustainer of true and lasting contentment. And that is in Jesus. So where do we begin? Two simple things. First, Asking. Just ask. John Calvin wrote, We should ask God to increase our hope when it is small, awaken it when it is dormant, confirm it when it is wavering, strengthen it when it is weak, and raise it up when it is overthrown.
ask Him. Second, rest. Rest. If you're a member of this church, you made five membership vows. And the second vow asks, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? And it's very simple to to say that when you become members, but when's the last time you've looked at that vow? And that's just not into the entry point into the kingdom, but it's it's a... it's a vow we should be reflecting upon often. Am I, I've received Him. Am I still receiving Him? Am I still resting upon Him? Upon Him alone. Not just for salvation, but for all of life. As I was preparing this sermon, I had the words of the well-known hymn going through my mind. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And there are, and more. Let's pray. God of all hope, We confess now that all too often we seek contentment, rest, joy, and hope in so many things. Things that were never meant to truly satisfy our longings for lasting contentment. Augustine was so right. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee. Would You be kind and gracious to us? Forgive our turning away from You. And would You take our restless, wandering hearts and grant each of us now new repentance and fresh grace to once again fix our hope in the redeeming work of your beloved Son, Jesus. And in doing so, may we experience the simple beauty of childlike rest and contentment which is found in you alone. Fill our hearts with the hope of Christ so that we may, with all the saints, through all the ages, embody the Apostle Paul's prayer in Romans 15, that we would be filled with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound, abound in hope. We ask these things, do them now, we pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen.